We're going to pause from our study in the gospel according to Luke this Sunday and consider uh, the incarnation of Christ, the, the promises that are bound up in his condescension to earth. And I'd like to use Isaiah chapter 40 to direct our thoughts. Our, our text comes from Isaiah 40 verses 1 to 11. And I'll begin by reading the passage there. If you'll give your attention to the reading of God's word. Isaiah 40, beginning in verse one. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, cry. And I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Go on up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would come now, that you would cleanse us by the washing of water with the word. Lord, sanctify us in the truth. Your word is truth. Do whatever you would be pleased to do in us. Change our will, change our affections, change our very hearts. Renew our thoughts. We ask this for Christ's sake. Amen. The Lord God declares through the mouth of his prophet Isaiah here a word of great hope, a word of great comfort to his people in Isaiah chapter 40. And it was something that they were surely in desperate need of. Uh, Israel had just cause for deep distress at this point in their existence. Uh, Isaiah chapter 40, as you'll know, comes right after Isaiah 39. 
And if you just flip back a chapter, you see in chapter 39 of Isaiah that doom is pronounced. Uh, It is announced to King Hezekiah, the king of Israel there, after centuries of uh, Israel's idolatry, centuries upon centuries of rebellion and sin against the Lord. And now comes Isaiah on the scene prophesying that Israel is going to be taken away. Uh, They're going to be taken away off into Babylonian captivity. Uh, Isaiah says there, behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and that which your fathers have stored up till this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. So the people of God and the, in the not too distant future are going to face this very long season of conquest and subjugation and exile. The temple in Jerusalem is going to be sacked. It's going to be desecrated. You get just a real sense of how dark those days must have been when you look at the very last words of the book of of Lamentations, you see the kind of troubles and woes this was going to mean for, for Israel. At the very end of Lamentations, it says there, the joy of our hearts has ceased. Our dancing has been turned to mourning. The crown has fallen from our head. Woe to us, for we have sinned. They find themselves in this place where they are, they're crying out to God. They are utterly desperate. They say, restore us to yourself, O Lord, that we may be restored. Renew our days as of old, unless you have utterly rejected us and you remain exceedingly angry with us. Those are the closing lines of the book of Lamentations. And they're, they're, they're at that point finding themselves very desperate for God's intervention. Not everyone responded that way. Uh, in fact, that, that isn't even the case for King Hezekiah. As good of a king as he was, even though he is counted among those, those righteous kings for so many of the wonderful things that he did in his fear of the Lord, Hezekiah, upon hearing this word of the Lord, told Isaiah, the word of Yahweh that you've spoken is good, for he thought there will be peace and security in my days. Nothing to worry about. As long as it goes well with me, that's fine. What do I need to worry about tomorrow? What do I need to worry about successive generations? Even King Hezekiah was overcome by the spirit of self-interest and spiritual short-sightedness as he heard the word of the Lord that he was so familiar with himself. Well, Anyone with just the smallest bit of sensitivity to what this word that had come through the prophet Isaiah um, was saying, they would have found themselves wrestling with despondency and with fear, with despair. So it's against that kind of backdrop that we, that we hear all of Israel's sin and their rebellion and their idolatry, notwithstanding this word of comfort come in chapter 40. God has mercy on the horizons. Designs not just of chastisement 
and punishment, but of peace. He has torn them in order that he may heal them. And so you, we, you, you see us moving as you, as you turn the page from chapter 39 into chapter 40, from devastation to deliverance. Just looking at verse one, look, look there at our text. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. You go from prophecies of catastrophe to promises of comfort. And it's not immediately apparent in the English here, but that word comfort is actually an imperative. God is not saying to his people, they're there. He is commanding that they be comforted. Not only that, but it's in the plural form. If you hear these words and you, like I do, hear Handel's Messiah immediately start running through your, your head, uh, you might have the, the old English there where it says, comfort ye, comfort ye, says the Lord. Ye being the plural form of that old English form of thou. So comfort y'all, says the Lord. Y'all comfort others. That's the idea here. God is calling many people to go and proclaim the good news of salvation to his people, and they are his people. Notice here that he still claims them for his own comfort. My people, says your God. And this is the great distinctive of Israel. Among all of the other peoples of the earth, God's announcement, they shall be my people and I will be their God. And you remember how the apostle Paul picks up on this very same theme as he's talking to the church at Corinth, another church that needs to be, uh, or another group of the people of God that needs to be chastened and admonished for uh, coming to think that light can have fellowship with darkness. Well, the, the apostle Paul pulls from this very same idea. He reminds them of this same glorious truth that God is a God who condescends. He makes himself known to his people. He identifies with them in, the, in their distress. And then the apostle Paul quotes from this passage in, in Leviticus, where the Lord declares, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them and I will be their God and they shall be my people I will be a father to you and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. That's the witness of scripture. Even though the, the Israelites are going to be strangers in a foreign land, don't get the idea that God has cast them off. Don't begin to get the idea that he has disassociated himself with his people. They're still his people. He's still their God. And he wants this message to reach their hearts. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her. This isn't something, in other words, that should be timidly whispered to, to them. It's a pressing kind of declaration. It's something to cry out to them. But then at the same time, you see this wonderful tension in the text. There's a tenderness to the appeal. Speak tenderly. It's a pleading appeal. 
This is the force of God's dealing with, with people who, who need to be reconciled to him. Hear the urgency of the cry, cry to them, but also hear the tenderness of his mercies. Now, where is the comfort found? Where does comfort come from? Well, it comes, of course, from the Lord, but, but how does God bring comfort home to the heart of his people, especially those whose sins have made a separation between them and their God? We see, first of all, in our text, the assurance of pardon. If you look at verse two, speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned. Her iniquity is pardoned. Forgiveness has been granted to her. Her crimes have been remitted. So brothers and sisters, just think about this for a second. There were combatants coming against Israel from the outside. You think about Nebuchadnezzar. You think about the Babylonians, the enemies without, all of Israel's oppressors. But then there was Israel's warfare that they had waged against the Lord themselves by way of their sin, by way of their rejection of the Lord. So much so that in the very beginning of Isaiah's prophecy, uh, he describes Israel's spiritual status such as, as if they were just an inch away from becoming another Sodom and Gomorrah. to which God responds by commissioning servants to go and declare payment has been made. Her iniquity has been pardoned. That word pardoned is used in a number of places in the Old Testament to describe blood sacrifices. It speaks to the fact that atonement has been accomplished. Satisfaction for sin has been made. That's the that's the, the whole uh, picture that the sacrificial system was designed to portray, that when a priest came and he laid his hand on the head of an animal, of a burnt offering, for example, that sacrifice would be accepted by God to make atonement for the sins of the people. Now, in our passage, Isaiah doesn't tell the people how Israel's pardon is going to come. He doesn't unpack how that payment is going to be provided for. You have to keep reading until you get to chapter 53, for example, before you discover how our griefs will be borne away, before you will learn who will be crushed for our iniquities, that it will actually be not an animal, but a man of sorrows, not a bull or a goat, but a God-man, one who will be led like a lamb to the slaughter. The important thing, though, to see here is that payment has been provided for. Satisfaction has been provided for. And Isaiah uses what we, what we love to describe as the prophetic perfect tense to get this, this point across that it is as good as done. Her warfare is ended. 
Her iniquity is pardoned. God says this. He makes it known to Israel before they're ever carted away. Before they're ever taken into captivity. But when that day comes, when they find themselves enslaved to those Babylonian overlords, here is the word that they'll need to call to mind. God has made provision for our sins. God has done what is necessary for us. Now, dear ones, that would be enough. But then it goes on. It says, tell her also that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Dear church, where sin abounded, grace abounded all the more. This is the Old Testament equivalent of that glorious truth we read in Romans. She has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. And the Bible emphasizes here the source again of Israel's comfort and peace. Where does it come from? Is it from your own doing? Is it something that you cook up, something that you manufacture? No, it comes from the Lord's hand. We haven't contributed anything to it. We certainly haven't earned it. There's nothing that we have done that could merit it in any way, but from the Lord's hand comes every good thing, double for all their sins. So this is an an announcement here of free, unmerited, sovereign, glorious grace from the hand of God. Grace upon grace. What an encouraging word this is. What an encouraging word this is that even in the worst of of, of times, no matter how far you may have strayed, God's children never cease to be objects of his compassion. It is of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed because his compassions, they fail not. Now, We come to verse three and we hear another voice. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. God is calling Israel's attention here to the need for preparedness. Uh, The king is coming, but the way has to be prepared. You have to make ready the way before the king comes. And so he sends out this herald in advance to lift up his voice and to cry, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Now, this, this is applied, of course, in the New Testament to John the Baptist, In the gospel of John, Jews come up to to John the Baptist and you remember they ask him whether he is the Messiah. This is what he says in John chapter one, verse 20. He confessed and did not deny, but confessed. I am not the Christ. And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. So they said to him, Who are you? 
we need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. As the prophet Isaiah said, there it is. The king is coming to his people. God is coming into the world. He's bringing that comfort and the the pardon that he had promised hundreds of years before. But how do we receive it? What does preparedness look like? How do we respond to this call to make straight the way of the Lord? Luke chapter three, it says, John went into all of the region around Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Again, just as it is written in the book of the prophet Isaiah. I wanna read to you from Luke chapter three in verse seven. Luke chapter three in verse seven, John the Baptist said therefore to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warns you to flee from the wrath to come, bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the ax is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree therefore that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Now I trust you you can see something of what Luke is doing there with this this prophecy that we see in Isaiah. He is helping us to understand in spiritual terms what what, what Isaiah pictured uh, by way of of these prophetic pictures of, of valleys being lifted up, of mountains, being brought down low. Part of receiving the king, in other words, means getting rid of obstacles. It means repentance from sin. It means turning away from from iniquity. Whatever stands in the way, don't rely on religious connections. We have Abraham as our father. That's what I cling to. No, that won't help you when you stand before the living God. Renounce allegiance to other sovereigns, other lords, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. This is what the Bible uh, gives an example of with, with Simeon in Luke chapter two. It says that there was this man in Jerusalem, his name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him and it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. Simeon was a man who had put all of his hope in God's good promise, the consolation of Israel. And it showed, you know, it showed in his life. He turned away from evil, he trusted in the promise of salvation, he was, he, he was waiting for, for that consolation so that when the glory of God was revealed, he was ready. He was ready. Look at verse five of our text, Isaiah 40, verse five. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. 
The apostle John said, John 1 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Glory of God was revealed in the sending forth of God's only begotten son, the eternal word, the Lord Jesus Christ. The radiance of the glory of God in the exact imprint of his nature, Colossians 1 says, laid in a manger, veiled in flesh, the Godhead see, we sing. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. And yet there was glory. There was glory nonetheless. Notice that it says in verse five, all flesh shall see it together. So God's redemptive purposes will certainly reach his exiled people who are in, 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 in Babylon, but that is not the end of the story. God's redemptive purposes are far more expansive than that. We're talking about the worldwide self-revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ, the second person of the Godhead. The earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God as the waters cover the sea. Cosmic redemption. How will that come to pass, you ask? The mouth of the Lord has spoken. Nothing more needs to be said. God himself has spoken it. God himself has declared it. That's how certain this is. That brings us to our next section in verses six to eight. We've seen the, the assurance of pardon, the need for preparedness. Third, God's answer to man's transience. God's answer to man's transience. Once again, God issues this command, cry. The voice says, cry. And I said, what shall I cry? That's a good question. That's a good question. God's messengers are, are those who, who know they have no message of their own to cry. They have nothing to herald apart from which they have been given. What does God want his people to know? All flesh is grass and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. So first, it says that flesh, talking about mankind, young people, flesh is grass. The psalmist says, my days are like an evening shadow. I wither away like grass. We are here today and then we're gone tomorrow. All the beauty of flesh is like the flower of the field. The point of, of that little proverb is not to say that flesh is a beautiful thing. It is not to say that man is comparable to the flower and that it's in that it's lovely, but that it fades away. Job gets at this very thing in Job chapter 14. 
He says, man who is born of a woman is few of days and, few, and full of trouble. He comes out like a flower and withers. He flees like a shadow and continues not. He says that, that, that man's days are determined and that God has appointed limits beyond which we cannot pass. Now, dear, dear ones, notice the universal terms that this passage speaks of. When it comes to the nature of man's constitution, all flesh is grass. There are no exceptions to this. Young people, I'll address you again. You may feel today like you are just in the prime of life that your, your future stretches infinitely out beyond where you are. The truth of the matter is that you are frail. And the Bible wants you to face that reality. The Bible wants you to come face to face with that reality. Reality, the, the scriptures in our text here today invite us to take a long, hard look at our transience, our passing nature, and really our utter helplessness at avoiding our end. Well, it's not just our helplessness and our, our frailty that explains that condition that explains our, our transience. If you look at verse seven, it says the grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. So God has his hand in this. God has his hand in the matter. Does that surprise you at all? Divine judgment has been poured out on the word, world. It is true that God is the giver of life. Our church, has been, our church has been blessed with lots of babies this year. And we rejoice, we rejoice in that. It's just as true that God has his hand in the end of our lives. In Psalm 90, Moses tells the Lord, you return man to dust and say, return O children of man. For we are brought to an end by your anger. By your wrath, we are dismayed. All our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. How does that impact your thinking? How does the knowledge of your frailty and your mortality shape the way that you live, the way that you think about your destiny, your relationship to the living God before whom we will all stand. Well, you can be sure that there is, there's no comfort to be found till your heart first agrees with what the word of God says about the state of man here. That apart from God's gracious intervention, in our lives, we pass our days under the, the, the shadow of God's judgment. So I, I just wanna ask you to, to reckon with that for, for a moment. Do, do, is your heart in accord with that truth? Is your heart in accord with what 
God himself has said about you, about your condition. That's the first order of business for us here. Before coming to the comfort, before we get to the assurance of pardon and the hope that Christ brings to the world to bring our hearts and our minds into agreement with the testimony of God's word concerning man's fallen condition. In fact, some have suggested that the close quotation marks around what shall I cry, if you look at verse six, might actually be extended all the way to the end of verse seven. We don't have quotation marks in the original language. Uh, We put them in our text because the English language uses them and that's perfectly fine uh, to do. It helps us to understand who, who is speaking, but the original didn't have that, which can make things a little bit challenging at times to discern who's, who's doing the speaking. Well, it's just possible that when it says cry, the one who is commissioned to cry says, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. In other words, all the way to the end of verse seven is almost an, ob- an objection to the command cry. A way of saying, but God, What about man's condition? What about your wrath? What about the judgment that we're under? How can this comfort come to pass with verse eight being the divine answer? Either way, this presents us with something to grapple with in the problem of man's transience. If this is the voice of the preacher, he's gotten certain things right when it comes to our nature to our fallen condition, but there's something he's left out. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. One commentator, Derek Kidner, he says here, the word of God here stands not as a contrast to man's transience, but as the cure of it. Let me read that again. The word of God stands here not as a contrast to man's transience, but as the cure of it. The promises of God, in other words, are covenant promises, promises he has sworn by himself since he had no one else by which to swear, nothing greater, promises he will not break. The promises of God can be spurned by by a generation. They can be forfeited through unbelief, but they, they cannot fall to the ground. They cannot. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. First Peter chapter one, Peter takes up this theme. Again, he quotes from Isaiah. He says, speaking to God's people, you have been born again, of not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of, of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. 
You see, it's against this backdrop of human frailty and sin and idolatry and rebellion against the Lord that we find the hope of redemption and life in the promise of God, the good news of the gospel. And this is always the pattern. It always comes in this order. The the word comes first to tell us the bad news, to show us who we really are. And then it offers us hope. Here's what you are. Here is the truth about your fallen condition. Now, if you will live, if you will know life eternal, you need the promise of God applied to your soul for it's the word of God alone that gives life by grace through faith in Christ alone. Finally, we see the promise of God's presence. Lord says in verse nine, get yourself up way up high, way up high. Verse nine, go on up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. Behold your God. Behold the hope of mankind, the good news that God has made himself known in the midst of his people. John the Baptist said, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. And the very next day, he sees Jesus coming toward him. And what does he say? Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, what will it be like when God comes down? Two things, just as we look at this tail end of this passage. First, we see Christ is a mighty king. Verse 10, behold, the Lord God comes with might and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. Jesus is a mighty warrior. He is a conqueror. He is a deliverer. Later in Isaiah, it says that God looks at at the state of things in the world. He sees the multiplication of transgressions, how righteousness stood far away. It says the Lord saw it and it, it displeased him. Reading now from Isaiah 59, verse 16. He saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm brought him salvation and his righteousness upheld him. He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. According to their deeds, so he will repay. Wrath to his adversaries, repayment to his enemies. To the coastlands, he will render repayment. So they shall fear the name of the Lord from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun. For he will come like a rushing stream, which the wind of the Lord drives 
and a redeemer will come to Zion to those in Jacob who turn from transgression, declares the Lord. His own arm brought salvation. Hallelujah. When there was no one else to save, no hope for mankind, God came to do what only he could do. Christ came to save us from our sins. He came to deliver us from the wrath that is to come. And behold, his reward is with them. What is his reward? What is his recompense? Later in the book of Isaiah, we hear the Messiah say, behold, I and the children God has given me. Friends, we are his reward. We are his recompense, his people, his flock. That brings us to verse 11. Christ is an almighty king. He's also a gentle shepherd. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Oh, here you see the heart of God toward wretched sinners, the grace and the loving kindness of the Savior, one who tends after the most vulnerable. He doesn't look over the, the widow and the orphan and the stranger. And it's important that we hold both of these truths, God's infinite power in Christ and his tenderness and his compassion together. Verses 10 and 11. What good is a, is a shepherd unless he's strong. What good is a shepherd if he's not able to defend us? If he's not able to protect us against the adversary and the foe? Well, Christ is gentle. He's lowly of heart, but he is not weak. At the same time, what use is a king if he never thinks about you? if he never takes any thought of you and your need, or if he's a tyrant, even worse, no one wants an almighty ruler if he's ruthless. But look at what you have here in your God. Look at what you have in the Lord Jesus, strength and compassion, might and gentleness, power and patience. And so what do we sing? Holy, 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 merciful and mighty. Both are true. Praise be to God. Question number one of the Heidelberg Catechism. What is your only comfort in life and in death? Answer, that I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful savior, Jesus Christ, he has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation. Because I belong to him, Christ, by his Holy Spirit, assures me of eternal life 
and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. Amen. Let's pray. Great God, Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus, Holy Spirit, we bow our hearts before you. What an awesome God we have. What a wonderful Savior you have given to us. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. Jesus was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Father in heaven, we pray that you would help us to know how great our sin and misery is, but also how great Jesus is. Lord, that we can be set free through the shed blood of your son. Lord, I pray that our lives would be an expression of praise and thanksgiving. Thanksgiving to the God of our salvation. Lord, may we take every opportunity you give us to, to shout from the mountaintops, behold your God, to, to herald the glory of Jesus Christ as his ambassadors. We love you, Lord, in Jesus' name.